1: our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.
0: Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist to The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political commentator for news, uh, for news radio stations WGN in Chicago and KNX in Los Angeles. Today, I'm also a concerned citizen of the world. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for and designs research-based media and message strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company, go to Facebook.com frontslash bannon communications research. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Today, my guest in the first half hour is Jamie Metzel, an advisor to the World Health Organization, who joins us today to discuss the coronavirus epidemic that is sweeping the world. Our guest in the second half hour is Nick Guthman, the founder of Our Blue Future, which organizes young Americans to be politically active. If you want to be a part of the show and talk directly to me and our guest today, call us at 888 6 Leslie. That's 888-653-7543. Our guest today in the first half hour is Jamie Mitzel, an advisor to the World Health Organization and a technology futurist. Jamie is also author of the highly acclaimed book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering in the Future of Humanity, which will be released in paperback soon on April 7th. You can follow Jamie on Twitter, where his handle is Jamie Metzl. That's J-A-M-I-E-M-E-T-Z-L. Jamie believes that COVID-19 has the potential to be a much greater global crisis than 9-11, and will require the type of wise global leadership we seem to be lacking. Jamie, welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.
2: Thanks so much, Brad. Happy to be here.
0: Okay, first, let's start
2: uh, with this. Can you
0: uh, you, uh, believe that this is a much uh, greater global crisis than 9-11? Please explain that.
1: Yeah,
2: well, so, I mean, more people have died. The disruption to our way of life is greater. Uh, and we still don't know the, the parameters of what this has the, the potential to be. Um, this virus is, um, has not been, obviously, uh, has not been contained. Our economic systems, our political systems are in some ways seizing up um, and so we're really going to need a to mount just a kind of of major major response, and we need to do a, a the kind of great job that we did in in 1941 to save the world, not the, the unfortunate job that we did following uh, following 9 11.
0: Well, uh, sadly, uh, we don't have a Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the helm the way we did in 19- 19. 41. Uh, we have Donald Trump instead. So why don't you uh, tell our listeners, uh, evaluate the president's uh, response to this crisis or lack thereof?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, everybody has our own political lenses that we see th- see things through. And so as much as possible, let's just put it aside and say, well, what is the ideal scenario? What is it that we would want And what is it that we have? So here's what we would want. We would want to have an administration um, that would say, there are some really big potential threats that are facing us and we need to plan against them. And so certainly the threat of a a pandemic virus uh, and a pathogen was one. There are other other threats, climate change, autonomous uh, killer uh, weapons, all, all sorts of things. And then say, "Well, what are the institutions and the systems that we need in place to protect against those threats?" This administration, when they came uh, came into office, there was a White House office of Pandemic uh, preparedness, uh, And that office was abolished. There was, and there is an international uh, a, a United Nations and systems and organizations like the World Health organizations with uh, world uh, World Health Organization with which I'm associated. Um, And this administration chose in many ways to undermine those institutions. So we definitely weren't ready. Then when this crisis um, uh, began to emerge uh, toward the end of last year, I used to work in, in the White House. And I know that in the U.S. federal government, we have our agencies. But when there's time to crack the whip to really get the federal government moving, you need presidential leadership. And we didn't see that At all. As a matter of fact, when this crisis was heating up, the messaging from the White House was completely the opposite of what it should have been. It was everything. Originally, was everything is fine, go about your lives. That was the worst uh, advice. And then we had the disaster um, of the inadequacy of the tests, and so we had no way of knowing, and still have no way of knowing how widespread the contagion. Uh, is. Um, and so that was another monumental failure. Now the administration is starting to recognize the severity of what we were facing. Uh, you mentioned FDR in 1941. If, if we had had this kind of leadership in 1941, I believe that the Japanese could have actually, and the Germans could have actually won the war. Um, and that doesn't mean it's too late, but we need to see leadership. Leadership matters in times of crisis like this. Donald Trump is the only president that we have, and we need him and we need his administration just to do a monumentally better job than we've seen them do to date.
0: Okay, uh, let's try this. Uh, uh, Fatality, you say that fatalities are likely to be very significant as the total number of infections grow. How widespread do you think the virus will become in the United States in the next two weeks, let's say?
2: So it's hard to say in the, in the next two weeks, but what we're seeing is roughly a doubling every six days or so. So we can just do the math from where we are to, uh, uh, to where we'll be. Um, but over the next year, um, We've seen there's a range of predictions about how widespread this uh, this would be, and you know, at the low end, you know, we've heard maybe twenty, thirty percent. Um, at the higher end, maybe seventy percent of all Americans uh, could be uh, could be infected. Um, there, there was uh, you know, so I was listening to a, a very smart person at Hopkins yesterday who was putting it at at fifty percent. The basic point is our species has never encountered this virus in our entire evolutionary history. So we have no built-in historical resistance to it. That's why this social distancing is is, is so important. And now, so let's just say that that number is 50%. uh, 50%. Um, And let's just say that the, the fatality rate isn't the 3.4% that the World Health Organization has estimated. And let's say it's not even the 0.6%, that, which is the fatality rate out of, um, out of South Korea, um, and that as we do more testing, we find out there are more asymptomatic uh, people everywhere, including here. So let's say it's 0.5%. So if 50% of the public gets it at a 0.5% fatality rate, that's 850,000 deaths and that's why this is so serious and that's why all of the things that we're talking about um, social distancing and everything else are so critically important now
0: okay we're going to go to a break now our guest in this half hour is jamie metzel uh, an advisor to the world health organization uh, and technology futurist we'll be back with more of deadline dc with brad bannon after these messages so don't go away We'll be right back. back. guest in this half hour is Jamie Metzl, an advisor to the World Health Organization and author of a book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering in the Future of Humanity, which will be released in paperback on April 7th. Uh, Jamie, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thank you, Brad. Uh, Let's start at, I'd like to ask you uh, what you think we should be doing at the, let's start the micro level and then work our way up. Uh, Just to our listeners out there, what do you advise our listeners to be doing and not doing?
2: Yeah. So everybody has a personal responsibility for this. So every, because... Um, what the name of the game is slowing the spread of this virus. Again, as I said in the last segment, we don't have any natural resistance to it. Younger people are better able, um, to, to uh, are harmed on average less, but that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of young people who are being, who are dying. Um, but we, so everybody needs to do your bit. That means all this basic hygiene stuff that, that everybody knows about with the hand washing and, being careful in those ways. It means all of these social distancing uh, issues. Now uh, things are being shut down, the bars and restaurants. But I was just frankly appalled um, by all of these young people who are out at, at bars and clubs and whatever. And even if uh, you're in an area um, where <clears throat> where there's only minimal spread of the uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, you must be doing this because That We have one in the United States with our testing is so terrible that this is far more widespread uh, that we know. And two, everybody has a role to play in slowing the transmission of the virus. And that's going to, to save a lot of lives.
0: Okay. Uh, Now let's look at the macro level. I think most people I've talked to believe that the Trump administration was asleep at the switch and was late to respond to this. But let's put that aside. Starting right now, what should the Trump administration be doing to limit the spread of the coronavirus?
2: So, uh, First thing is we need to ramp up testing. I think they finally gotten that message. It was way, way, way too late, but I think that that is is now in train. Um, We need to uh, make it easy. Uh, We need to shut down a lot of these bigger gatherings and social interactions. That's happening. Uh, uh, CDC uh, yesterday just put out a, a notice about gatherings over 50. State and local authorities are all moving now very quickly on that. Uh, we need consistent messaging on this from the White House. Again, the the wes- the messaging from the White House has been not just contradictory, but not helpful. Actually, harmful. Um, we need to expand our capacity uh, because it's very very likely that soon um, we're going to be having shortages of all sorts of things, um, and not just hospital beds, uh, but even um, uh, healthcare professional workers, because as doctors and nurses are infected, because they are at, at the front lines, many of them are going to need to be quarantined. Uh, so then what are we going to do? We don't have enough ventilators. There are all kinds of, uh, and so we're going to need to think differently about how we provide services, about who does what, about opening up our systems. Um, people, we're going to need to relatively quickly virtualize aspects of our lives. I mean, that's been happening since the telegraph, uh, but now uh, things like telemedicine, um, things like cashierless stores, uh, delivery, um, just so many different areas of our lives where we've done it one way, we're going to have to change quickly. And at moments of crisis like this, we need our government. We talked about 1941, Ah, uh, the u s. government sprung into action. It wasn't just the government. It was everybody, but President Roosevelt and the the uh, and his administration set the tone. And that's what we need from our from our White House. And finally, I will say, this is not a local thing. Um, America first is the stupidest. I mean, we need to take care of America. But this is a global pandemic. And all of these institutions, all of these norms uh, that have been poo-pooed by this administration, it's never too late to to find Jesus, and that, that we need to recognize that we are going to get through this globally. Um, because even if we suppress this here, and and even if, and we don't know this, this is a, a, a seasonal virus, it's just going to go south uh, or other parts of the country or north. Um, during the hotter seasons, and then come right back. So we are all connected, and we're only going to be able to get through this crisis together.
0: Okay. Well, you know that reminds me when I was watch, when I was uh, watching the president's uh, speech last Wednesday. It's it was very nationalistic. You know, we're going to stop this from. Uh, you know, spreading in the United States, going to stop these foreign influences and viruses. Foreign virus,
2: yeah, foreign virus.
0: And it seemed to me it was exactly, it was like very nationalistic, we're going to take care of ourselves and insulate ourselves from the world. And it strikes me that's just the opposite. I mean, we should be spreading, we should be, you know, working across national borders to try to put a, uh, you know, stamp on this yeah. Uh, l- let me ask you about something that came up in the Democratic debate last night. The, one of the moderators uh, asked uh, <laughs> Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden about the idea of uh, nationalizing and, and bringing out the National Guard. And Joe Biden said something which uh, I thought was pretty sensible, uh, that the National Guard is uh trained to deal with all kinds of emergencies, even medical emergencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would you think it would be a good idea for President Trump to nationalize the National Guard and uh, put them
2: into action? I don't think we need to nationalize them and just in the sense that we have some state we have state controls over the the National guards guard in, in many ways. Um, but we're going to need them. I mean, we're going. This is going to be an all hands on deck crisis moment for this country, and so we're going to need to use the resources uh, that we have. Uh, and I, I'm certain that the National Guard will be part of the mix. Uh,
0: I was watching a uh, interview with uh, the governor of Massachusetts on uh, YouTube this morning. And a reporter asked uh, Governor Baker uh, if he contemplated uh, an order limiting uh, – actually, uh, we're out of time, Jamie. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Our guest was Jamie Metzel, an advisor to the World Health Organization and Technology Futurist. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. History will record that Donald Trump was asleep at the switch while a deadly virus derailed the United States. We can only hope that the next president gets the nation back on the right track. At a campaign rally in South Carolina on February 28th, the president claimed Democrats had politicized the coronavirus outbreak and it was their new hoax. Before that, on January 22nd, the president said, we have it it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. It's going to be just fine, the president reassured us. Since then, thousands of Americans have been infected. Some have died. The economy is on the verge of collapse, and the worst is yet to come. After dismissing COVID-19 as a hoax, Trump finally declared a state of emergency Friday, March 13th. The president of the United States should be an international and national leader, but his tardy response followed aggressive action by prime ministers and American governors governors who were much more proactive. By the time Trump finally got around to declaring a national emergency, Disney had already closed the company's theme parks, several governors. Uh, had declared state of emergencies, and every major professional amateur sport had suspended or ended their season. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell took his cue from the president and failed to act. Last Wednesday, the Democratic House Majority passed an emergency bill to combat the coronavirus while the Senate GOP Majority adjourned without acting. Last Thursday, March 12th, was the anniversary of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first fireside chat in 1933. The nation was deep in depression, banks were closing, and millions of Americans didn't have access to their life savings. FDR's address that night calmed an anxious nation. Last night, Wednesday night, Donald Trump gave a halting nationally televised speech that made Americans even more nervous than they already were. The next day, Thursday, Wall Street suffered its biggest meltdown since the economic crash of 1987. Joe Biden's address to the nation last Wednesday was everything Donald Trump's wasn't. The former vice president and current presidential hopeful sounded and acted like a president trying to run a country while Trump came across as a candidate running for office. Biden was cool, calm and collected while the president appeared nervous during his speech. Biden's speech was full of reassurance. He reminded Americans that the United States was a great country which had a history of succeeding in the face of adversity. Trump's success as a candidate, followed by his failure as president, clearly dramatized the difference between sales and administration. There's an edge to everything Donald Trump says and does. That edge served him well during the 2016 campaign, but it wasn't what a troubled nation needed from a chief executive during a crisis. The president's address Wednesday night was full of xenophobia and racism that were staples of his 2016 campaign rhetoric. During the 2016 campaign, candidate Trump made his disdain for science very clear. Despite the near unanimous warnings of climate scientists from all over the world, he claimed global warming was a Chinese hoax. It appeared that the immediate victim of Trump's war against science would be the fight against climate change. But the coronavirus has taken center stage while the ravages of climate change wait in the wings. The president's disdain for science was manifest on February 27th when he said, One day, it's like a miracle, it will disappear. Well, it didn't. The first casualties of his belief in magic and his crusade against knowledge are the thousands of people across the world who have died of the deadly plague. In May 2018, the president abolished the office in the White House responsible for fighting pandemics, and appropriations for the Center of Disease Control have declined every year of his presidency. I remember worrying on election night, in 2016 about the consequences of Donald Trump's elevation to the presidency. I thought that if we get into a war while this guy is president, we're so screwed. Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders told Americans last week that the virus was on a scale of a major war. He's right, and the commander-in-chief we have is completely incompetent. Hopefully, we'll have a new president on January 20th next year. The big question is how bad things will get between now and then. You can read my take on the presidential race in the Hill every Monday. Just Google muckrack.com front slash Brad Dash Bannon. That's M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K dot com front slash Brad Dash Bannon. Our guest today on the Provocative Progressive Political Panel is Nick Guffman, the founder of Our Blue Future, which organizes young Americans to be politically active. Nick's Twitter handle is at NickGuthman, all one word. That's N-I-C-K-G-U-T-H-M-A-N. Joining Nick on the panel is our own Mark Grimaldi. Mark has been executive producer of The Leslie Marshall Show for 14 years and a progressive political activist for the last 12. Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform efforts around the country and philanthropic efforts for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Uh, Nick, welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. It's good to have you on again. Oh, Thanks for having me. Uh, First of all, let me ask you this, Nick. Uh, Am I right? Are we going to have a new president in January next year? Absolutely. We
3: are going to have a new president. We're going to have a Democrat in the White House come January. Um, And young people are fired up to make it happen and know that we have to do everything we can to take up the mantle of responsibility and organize our peers uh, and and get them out to vote uh, all across this country for whoever the Democratic nominee uh, is.
0: OK, let me ask you this, Nick. Uh, if you look at uh, most of the primaries, uh, especially the ones that were on the 16 or so that run Super Tuesday and the five that last week, uh, turnout among seniors is higher than it was in 2016. But that's not the case for young voters, is it?
3: Um, well, it's it very state by state, but it is a fact that the youth voter turnout is not anywhere where we need it to be. And the interesting thing that I, I would really like to make clear here is that just as there are efforts now to increase youth voter turnout, the same and sort of opposite efforts are taking place to hold down our vote, to uh, to restrict our vote, to limit the amount of polling places on college and high school campuses and to make it harder for young people to vote. And so uh, my message in terms of why young people aren't voting, it's not because we don't care about the issues, it's not because we don't know how important this election is, but it's because we're operating in a system and a structure that isn't working for us. And there's easy ways that we can fix this. For example, allowing more polling places on campus, um, allowing students to use their student ID card as a form of identification to go in and vote uh, at their local polling station. So there are structural changes that we need in order to increase the youth turnout. And I actually think there's an interesting angle now with this deadly coronavirus and COVID-19 to really demand uh, a more inclusive and accessible uh, democratic reforms, like vote by mail, which would absolutely increase youth voter turnout and turnout for all young or for all Americans, uh, as well as um, even pushing the needle on automatic voter registration. Uh, Because our our student organizers right now are uh, re-strategizing, figuring out uh, new ways to engage with their peers now that everyone's off of their college campus and are moving online um, and can no longer hold a table on their campus quad to register voters. So it begs the question, why do we have to register to vote in the first place? Can it be automatic? And there are several countries and models around the world and even in some localities and states in our country where they make it easier for young people and all people to register to vote so i think we got to look at the structural reasons why the young people aren't voting uh, and not blame the individual students themselves
0: okay you know i remember watching the television coverage on super tuesday and uh, one of the networks uh, had a camera at uh, ucla uh, in Los Angeles and the lines there uh, for the students were unbelievably huge and uh, some of them had to wait hours and in, uh, in order to vote so uh, that's a major problem okay we're going to go to break now but we come back we'll have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon in this half hour as usual we have our provocative progressive political panel uh, joining us on the panel today um, are Nick Guthman, the executive director and founder of Our Blue Future, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon after these messages. Progressive Political Panel in the second half hour of the show today. Joining us on the panel are Nick Guthman, who is founder and executive director of Our Blue Future, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who is a progressive political activist. Mark, let's start with you. Uh, what did you make of the uh, big debate last night between Bernie Sanders and, and Joe, Joe Biden? We finally got it down to two candidates.
1: Yeah, you know, Brad, I think that it was an appropriate amount of concern shown while still trying to balance the, uh, you know, sobriety of the situation that was necessary and the seriousness of it. Um, You know, one of the things that that struck me, and I didn't even think about it until someone brought it up to me, was that uh, the novelty of of Vice President Biden opening the debate by first saying... um, you know expressing his his concern and and sympathies and sending his best wishes to those who have confirmed positive tests for covid-19 and that the fact that Donald Trump has not done that he he has not talked about the people who are sick and dying and it's for obvious reasons because he doesn't want to bring attention to his massive failures that are costing lives um but it's really saying something that the president of the United States um, is not doing that, and that it was such a striking thing just to hear someone in a position of leadership uh, say something like that because you haven't heard it from Vice President either. I mean, the only person in charge that I've really seen take any sort of responsibility and talk frankly with the American people is Dr. Fauci, um, you know, who's heading up the medical response. Thank God we have someone like that in a a position that high because he's doing the job that, you know, many other people should be doing with him, seemingly, you know, almost on his own in that administration. Um, So I, I think it's a massive concern. I do think there was a little bit too much time Spent arguing about, you know, old votes between the two of them. And obviously, with, uh, you know, Senators Sanders and Vice President Biden having worked together in the Senate for so long, and, and you know, Senator Sanders at some points trying to differentiate his record from Vice President Biden's, I think it was inevitable that you were going to hear some of it. Um, I also think they got lost in the weeds a little bit. And I do think that, um, although I think a balance needs to be struck, um, about criticizing the president at a time like this. I also think they honestly could have done a better job just specifically focusing on the facts of where Trump is failing us. Um, And I don't think that's unfair to do at this time because you're criticizing decisions or lack of decisions that are costing people's lives. And by making an effective critique of the situation, not only could you highlight what a better job you would be doing, um, it may push... Uh, it in the public's eye for those changes to be made and pressure to be put on the president and the vice president and their administration to make those changes.
0: Okay. You know, honestly, uh, if uh, Joe Biden becomes president, uh, I think you can put your finger on what he brings to the table uh, from last night's debate. First of all, he seemed very warm verse given the fact that he is vice president for years on what happens in the white house what should happen in the white house in terms of a crisis i also thought that his closing statement last night was was a you know work of art uh he lowered his voice uh he spoke uh he spoke Uh, softly. And he really gave Americans a sense that he understood the difficulties they were facing during this crisis. Uh, And Joe Biden does that very well. He's very empathetic. And more than anything else, I I think that that what is what may end up sending him to the White House. Uh, Let me ask Nick a question. Nick, let me ask you a question that Senator Sanders um, asked uh, Joe Biden last night. And the question was, uh, Joe, uh, and there's a rationale for this question. Uh, If you look at the exit polls in the primaries, uh, young voters, especially voters under 40, are voting overwhelmingly uh, for uh, Senator Sanders, uh, while seniors are voting overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And the question Bernie Sanders asked Joe Biden last night is, Joe, if you're the nominee, how can you bring uh, young people along so they'll vote for you uh, in November after not supporting you uh, during the primary system? Uh, Nick? It's uh, the question that that,
3: um, we are thinking about at Blue Future that several of our partners who work with young people are thinking about. And for now, I think the simple answer is, uh, if Vice President Biden becomes the nominee, he uh, should reach out and, and listen to the youth-led organizations in this country, like the Sunrise Movement, like United We Dream, um, uh, and and so many others who work on various issues, um, and really hear, you know, what they'd like to see from their, their you know, Democratic nominee. Um, and it's his responsibility to do that outreach and you know, just as much as we will be needing him if he's the nominee, young people will need Joe Biden to win if we want to make progress on the multitude of issues that are important to our generation. But just as much as we need him, he needs us. And I hope that he'll him and his team, who of course are very smart and know what they're doing clearly, um, will take a moment to to bring uh, us young folks to the table um, and make space for us on their campaign, which they have not done so far, and that's indicative of the primary. Uh, outcomes in terms of the generational divide because we are the largest voting block in this country uh, as i mentioned earlier there are so many structural barriers in our way as we try to vote but um uh, i believe that biden can do this this kind of coalition building and this outreach so that young people feel like they've had uh, a, a say in his campaign and had some
0: ownership around it okay uh nick uh, thanks very much for joining us today uh, that's it for Deadline DC. I want to thank, uh, my guest today, uh, World Health Organization Advisor Jamie Metzl, uh, Nick Gutman, the founder and executive director of Our Blue Future, and our own executive producer Marco Maldi.